0: Hello and thank you for tuning in to episode 43 of You Play A What. I hope all of you are well. Congratulations to all the secondary school band members and instructors for a job well done. We are looking forward to the JC League of the presentation now and then it's see you in two years time, SYF. So uh, what I would like to talk about today will be placebo versus nocebo and how we can use it to our advantage to enter peak performance mode. I know that some of our music students in higher music education are preparing for important recitals at the moment, and it can be quite high stress and pressure inducing to perform under these circumstances. But before we get into this idea of placebo, I just want to state this very clearly. No amount of placebo can make up for poor preparation. So, placebos are not going to miraculously make you play better, but it will be the extra bit that allows you to perform close to your best level when stress or when pressure kicks in. Just imagine taking the final penalty in a World Cup final, and if you miss, your team loses the game. How can we frame our mind to not let the pressure take over and still execute what we have to do as we've practiced during the training sessions or in our practice rooms? So let's start with the definition of placebo and nocebo and how it affects our mind. So for placebo, uh, by standard definition, it's a medicine or procedure prescribed for the psychological benefit of the patient rather than for any physiological effect. So basically, it's something that is prescribed to them to give them a more positive state of mind that in return would have an effect on their physiology and the physical side of things. Nocebo is a detrimental effect on health produced by psychological or psychosomatic factors such as negative expectations of treatment or prognosis. So, placebo and nocebos are basically opposite of each other. So, for nocebo, it's a negative state of mind that translates to a negative uh, physiological well-being. For placebo, it's a positive state of mind that has a positive physiological effect. So, I know these two definitions are medically based, but of course, placebos and nocebos stretches further than the medical field. There is a negative connotation that comes with placebo, but it is actually not all negative. Placebos are deemed as bad because it's a reflection that a doctor is not able to diagnose the condition of a patient properly and prescribe the correct medicine. Therefore, they result to using placebo to see if they become better. So of course, it can be frowned upon in the medical industry. But for today, we're not going to talk about that. So out of medical context, placebo is actually important to the human because we tell ourselves stories and stories affects our physiology. It changes the way we interact with ourselves and the world around us. So let's take plants for example. Plants don't respond to placebo. They can't tell the difference between tap water and a $5 bottle of spring water. Uh, Dogs can't tell between expensive dog food and cheap dog food if they are made out of the same ingredient. So they will respond to the products objectively so they don't tell themselves a story that oh this food or this particular water costs more therefore i'm going to grow better so the more expensive or the higher quality the product i use on uh, to feed the dog or to water the plant it means that the dog will be will be healthier or the plants will grow up to be stronger uh, so we've now established that placebo has a deep effect on how we think, and the result of that is that it translates to how we feel and how we perform on a regular basis. So I first came across the placebo effect when I was reading this book entitled Bounce by Matthew Syed. Uh, Matthew Syed is actually a international table tennis champion and in the book he talks about the myth of talent and the power of practice basically explaining the 10,000 hours idea behind excellence and mastery of a particular sport or or a particular act like playing an instrument for example the book is all about enhancing performance and making sure that we are in peak performance when it matters. So, a couple of things that I've learned about the placebo effect from the book. Uh, In 1944, the Allied forces launched an attack in the north of Italy, which backfired and resulted in American soldiers being trapped in caves for over a week. A young doctor by the name Henry Beecher was tasked to treat the influx of American soldiers, and he soon ran out of anesthetic, So facing this problem with soldiers who needed urgent operation and treatment on their wounds, Beecher instructed the nurse to inject salt water into the patients instead of morphine. Beecher then found out that soldiers not only were comforted by the injection, but they were able to tolerate the entire surgery as though they have been injected with the real anesthetic Beecher then went back to the US and then wrote a paper about the placebo effect. So following that, in 1972, there was another test where sugar pills were given to students, either in pink or in blue. They were told that one of them is a stimulant and the other one is a sedative, but they were not told which was which. And it turns out that the pink pill did a better job in maintaining concentration as compared to the blue one. Basically, what this experiment tells us is that the color of the pill actually does play a part in the way we think and the way we frame our mind and the reaction that the body has towards this, uh, essentially, two of the same pill. Another drug, oxazepam, was more effective for anxiety in green and more effective for depression in yellow. Chlorodiceapoxyde, is more effective in capsule than in a pill form. And salt water injection are more effective than sugar pills for headaches and other pains, although both product does nothing medically. In another experiment, they compared the results for placebo treatment for arm pain, and it turns out that fake acupuncture worked better as compared to sugar pills. And of course, the price of painkillers where the more expensive it is, the better their efficacy, which is also not entirely true. So apart from these medical examples that I've just shared with you, other placebo effects on uh, with regards to our day-to-day living could be why would some people think that a $200 bottle of wine tastes better than a $20 one? Part of it is also the way we frame our mind, that this is more expensive, therefore it could quite possibly be better, and this is cheaper, therefore the quality will not be the same. When it comes to placebo, we got to be quite careful as well because it's easy for us to get into the game of expensive placebos. So i just share with you the examples between cheap placebos versus expensive placebos. So we're not talking about the efficiency, not that cheap is worse or expensive is better, just that expensive means that you have to spend a lot of money on it and cheap means that you don't have to spend any money or it's relatively inexpensive. So uh, for cheap placebos, one of the best example is that if a child or your child uh, fell down and hurt his or her knee and in return what you did was to give them a hug so that they feel better about the pain and about the fall, that is the best kind of placebo because you're allowing them to feel that, personal intimacy and care makes them feel better. Another alternative is you can also offer them like a plaster or band-aid if you give that to them. Uh, It's also a sign of telling them that you can purchase this item from a drugstore at a relatively inexpensive price and applying that onto your wound would actually make you feel better. A more kind of uh, specifically Singaporean context is this idea that before a big exam, you should just drink a bottle of chicken essence and it will make you feel more energetic for your exam and you can focus better and you'll do better. And if consuming that bottle of chicken essence really makes you feel much better and much more energetic, then go for it. I mean, I would say that chicken essence is not uh, priced ridiculously high. So if you if that's what works for you and after drinking that chicken essence you feel like you can take on the world and you can do well in the exam by all means have that confidence and you know without like feeling tired or feeling unfocused for the exam so you should definitely go for that so on the other hand with expensive placebos we have things like boutique goods like branded handbags expensive shirts uh we have things like rhino horns some people use it for some uh, medicinal benefits, when there is really no medicinal benefits, it's just placebo, but very, very expensive placebo. Or it's it can be a collector's item, you know, as a as some form of showing your social status that you have or this particular toenail that is growing out of the face of a rhinoceros in a case. And yeah, and you paid a lot of money for it, I guess. Uh, other supplements made from animal parts. So I know there are companies that are selling that with not much scientific uh, proof that it works. It's just ridiculously expensive to purchase these supplements and it it could potentially not have any effect, right? So you're paying a lot of money for something that might not work the next thing that we're going to talk about are the different steps and the, the different sort of placebos that we can use to frame our mind to make sure that or to ensure that we have a higher chance of having like to go into this peak performance mode and all of them don't require money I promise you so they are all relatively cheap placebos but things that we can tell ourselves to set ourselves in that, that frame of mind to set ourselves up for success uh, and to not let high pressure and high stress get in the way of performing the way that we've prepared and the way that we want to play. We are going to go into the placebos that help us in elevating performance level. So there are going to be a lot of sports reference here because obviously uh, Matthew himself is an athlete and he has lots of experience with sports psychology. So lots of sports uh, reference here, but we'll try to connect the dots and see what is applicable for us as performers. Uh, Once again, I want to just drive across this point that placebo and the changing of the way we think about the way we perform needs to work hand-in-hand with good preparation. This only works if you prepared well. If you didn't prepare well, chances are it is not going to miraculously help you play better. Okay? First thing, being guided and being supported by a higher power. So, I know this can be quite a touchy subject because this has to do with religion. But I'm not saying that you have to be religious in order to go into this sort of like peak performance mode. I'm saying that if you are already a religious person and you believe in a particular religion, you can go into that frame of mind to help you do better. Okay? So, I see this quite commonly in football where before the footballer steps on the pitch, they might, you know, for example, touch the turf or do the sign of a cross and they always line up. They always enter the pitch as the last player. There's particular uh, superstition about this, right? About how they enter the pitch. Most of you might know I'm a Liverpool fan. So I'm going to give you two examples of footballers from Liverpool that I see practice such behavior so the first footballer of course is uh the current star player of liverpool mo Salah. so he is an egyptian and he is muslim so whenever he scores he will do a bow uh, as of someone would do in a muslim prayer every time after he scores a goal he he'll, he'll do like that particular gesture so you might think that oh okay why, why, would he, why would he do that? I think it's because that perhaps, uh, I can't say for certain, that he feels that the higher power has helped him to play well or score a goal or they have gifted him this talent or this gift to be playing football and he's thankful for that. So whenever he scores, he gives thanks and respect back to the higher power. So this is just a, a potential thought. And uh, there's a former Liverpool player called Daniel Sturridge. So uh, he's a British player. He'll always enter the pitch walking in reverse. So he'll walk backwards with his back facing and reverse into the pitch. And he'll point to the sky and recite something before he go onto, this, uh, onto the pitch. Uh, maybe a prayer, maybe something else. I really don't know. Um, but these are the things that uh, footballers do so that they can elevate stress. You know, And relating to this, uh, a study was done in the year 2000 on Korean athletes and showed that prayer was a key factor in elevating stress and attaining peak performance and providing meaning to participation in sports. If you are a religious person, perhaps you can consider this approach. So in a high-stress and high-pressure environment, maybe you can go into that safe space And then just try to calm yourself down and give yourself a sense of purpose in the work that you do. And I would like to read you a quote from a participant in this study in Korea. And and I quote, I always prepared my game with prayer from the major games to the minor games. The content of my prayer to God is to help me do my best. I committed all things to God without worry. These prayers make me calmer and more secure and I forget the fear of losing. It resulted in good play. So this is the thought process of an athlete that uses a religion to help them perform better. So definitely, I think when it comes to musical performance, we can also go there. At the end of the day, what we are trying to do here is to just make sure that we feel more comfortable and we can perform without stress and we can heat this uh, peak performance mode, right? So it's all about hitting the peak performance mode and removing the stress and everything that's negative that comes together with that. The next point is irrational optimism. So this is to remove all last-minute self-doubts and commit yourself to the performance and avoid indulging in inner skepticism. So... During our preparation and practice, we are most likely going to doubt and think of a better way of doing things, right? This entire music education, we spend scrutinizing our playing, we spend uh, thinking about the things that we can't do, we spend time thinking about being better. But in a performance situation, it is more important to be in the winner-takes-all mentality and that you are going to own the performance, Okay, this is by no means saying that you will not make a mistake. That is a different way of framing your mind altogether. So we are not saying that you're not allowed to make mistakes, but it's more like you are going to play well. You're going to play up to the level that you've prepared and you've prepared well and you're ready for this and you're ready to play to your best possible ability. Another quote from the book Bounce. This is by former Arsenal manager, Arsene Wenger. Of course, one of the most successful football managers. And I quote, To perform to your maximum, you have to teach yourself to believe with an intensity that goes way beyond logical justification. No top performer has lacked this capacity for irrational optimism. No sportsman has played to his potential without the ability to remove doubt from his mind. And actually, when I was studying in the UK, one of my studio mates and the current principal euphonium of the Black Duck Band, Daniel Thomas, he always says this. And he's by no means uh, an arrogant or overconfident person, but he says that all the time, that when it comes to performance time or the day of the recital, he will feel like nothing can take him down. And he will be able to play the best and on that particular day or on during that particular 20 minutes that he's playing for uh, during the recital, or however long, that he is the best euphonium player out there in the world. He says very clearly only during that span of time. Of course, if you were to make that uh, statement, not too many people would uh, have argument about that, I'm sure. So, in in order for us to get into this state of mind as performers, we need to develop our own pre-performance ritual. Chances are that you will feel the jitters perhaps 30 minutes before the performance. It will be useful for you to build a retro before your performance so that you arrive at peak mental state for peak performance. So in the book, Bounce, uh, Matthew shares his pre-performance retro and I'm going to read you some of the things that he does leading up to his competition or tournament. And I quote, Precisely 15 minutes before a match was scheduled to begin and having already warmed up, got the feel of my paddle in the practice hall and talked tactics with my coach, I would vanish out of the hall and make my way over to my carefully chosen retreat. Once there, in the quiet and solitude, I would close my eyes and begin a carefully rehearsed sequence of deep breathing exercises. Inhale, relax. Inhale, relax. Inhale, relax. When first starting out, It could take a good few minutes to quieten one's mind, but after long practice, it took me only 90 seconds or so to get my heart rate down and the mind into a state of deep relaxation. Okay, so this is the first part of the quote. And of course, this is not uncommon advice for musicians as well before going onto the performance stage to do this sort of breathing exercise to just kind of regulate the heart rate a little bit to refocus on everything but he goes on to explain a few more steps which I thought is quite interesting. So, and I, con- and I continue. With my mind nice and still, I would begin the process of what psychologists call positive imagery. In my case, a series of vivid recollections of the greatest and most inspiring table tennis matches I had ever played. First, I would be looking in from the outside, like a spectator, seeing the wonderful strokes, applauding the audacious attacks, marveling at the array and diversity of skills. Then the perspective would switch and I would be inhabiting my own body, feeling the sensuousness of the ball on the pedal, the uninhibited flow of my movement, the exhilaration of playing to my best ability and beyond. Then I'll switch the focus and imagine myself playing my upcoming opponent. Executing the tactics discussed with my coach and sensing a deep and growing feeling of optimism. I can feel my confidence solidifying, I can feel the doubts dissolving and I feel better and better. Okay, so this stage is perhaps something that we don't think of as much as performance and I think what the book has stated and what Matthew has stated is actually quite useful. The, the fact that if we can put ourselves in a state whereby we are thinking of the best concerts and the best gigs that we've played or the best moments that we've played, either in a practice room or in a performance hall, dial into that mindset and dial into that sort of feeling, okay, and enjoy the entire process from the mind and then going through the musical strategies and the musical decisions that we've made in the piece and having imagined us executing our plan to the highest level possible, right? I think that would really make us go into another level of uh, optimism and positivity. And then he goes on to say, and I quote, then another mental switch is what psychologists call positive affirmations. I'm no longer seeing myself in action but stating the following strangely powerful words. You can win. Over and over with growing conviction. Note that I'm not saying I can win. I'm talking to my inner self as if trying to talk him out of his default skepticism. The last few affirmations are ever so slightly different to You will win. You will win. And with that, I open my eyes, my head actually nodding in agreement my face etched with conviction and my lips smiling. Slowly, I walk back into the competition arena, nod at my coach, exchange a high five, walk onto the court, shake hands with my opponent. I am in precisely the place mentally I want to be and I am at one with myself and my world. So that is his entire process of getting himself into that mental state to perform at the highest level. So perhaps it's something that you can try for your upcoming performance because if you're going to be affected by NERF and the higher pressure situation, what's there not to try, right? If this little 15 minutes or 10 minutes retro is going to help you focus your mind, why not? And I think what is really interesting as well is the way he timed this this entire event. And the moment he was done, he walked back into the arena and back into the call, or wherever it is, he was ready to go. And there was not a lot of waiting time anymore. So imagine if you were to do this two hours before your recital, that might not work very well because after that 15 minutes that you took to center yourself and focus your mind, you have too much time to think about, oh, what could possibly go wrong again? And then your mind goes into this sort of jitters or your mind goes into like overdrive thinking about all the uh, skepticism or all the unnecessary negative doubts and thoughts, okay? So timing this pre-performance ritual is quite interesting. So maybe after the retro, go on, play a couple of notes, and then bam, in, onto the stage and go for that performance. So I've just shared some of my thoughts about placebo and mostly from this book, Bounce, that I thought could help anybody that is facing a big performance coming up in a high-stress and high-pressure environment. And I would like to just end off this episode with another quote from the book. And I quote, The lesson in all of this, however, is that beliefs are aimed not solely at truth, but what works. It is not just sportsmen. Of course, none of us can get by without beliefs that veer away from reality. We accentuate the positives, suppress the negatives, block out the traumas, create mini-narratives about our lives and loved ones on honest reflection and little basis to reality. We do this not merely to win, but to survive. Uninhibited reasons can be a perilous thing, as anyone who has studied the lives of the philosophers will testify. The difference is that world-class performers, often in conjunction with sports psychologists and mind coaches, take these mental manipulators to greater extremes. They have taught themselves to ratchet up their optimism to the point of performance, to mold the evidence to fit their beliefs rather than the other way around. And it is proficiency in these skills that often separate the best from the rest. End quote. What is your relationship with placebo? Is it positive or negative? I will share a link of the book Bounce by Matthew Syed on the show notes. If you'd like to borrow a physical copy for a read, drop me a message on the podcast Instagram account, You Play a What. We can set something up. Thank you for staying with me through this episode, and thank you for your attention, the most precious commodity anyone has to offer. And with that, I'll sign off on this episode of You Play a What. You have been listening to You Play a What, hosted by Vincent Tan. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algirdas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play Awards. Until next time. Thank you.